just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love us and care for us. We ask that you guide and lead us as we look at these verses in Deuteronomy and that you will show us what you would have us to see from them. We just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, before we go. Deuteronomy 28. Oh, 28. And uh, we're going to be looking at verse 63. And it shall come to pass that the Lord, that as the Lord rejoiced over you to do good and to multiply you, so the Lord will rejoice over you to destroy you and to bring you into naught. And you shall be plucked from off the land whither you go to possess it. And the Lord shall scatter you among all the people from one end of the earth even unto the other. And there you shall serve other gods which neither you nor your fathers have known, even wood and, or, and stone. And among these nations you shall find no ease, neither shall the sole of your foot have rest. But the Lord shall give you a trembling heart and failing eyes and sorrow of mind. And your life shall hang in doubt before you and you shall fear day and night and shall have no assurance of your life in the morning you will say would god it were evening and at evening you will say would god that it were morning for the fear of your heart wherewith you shall fear and for the sight of your eyes which you shall see and the lord shall bring you into egypt again with ships by the way where if i speak unto you you shall see it no more and there you shall be sold unto your enemies for bondmen and bondwomen, and no man shall buy you. So we're going to look at this. The very first one I really want to spend some time with because I didn't want to cover that last week because we didn't have time to really look at it. And it shall come to pass that as the Lord rejoiced over you to do good and to multiply you, so the Lord will rejoice over you to destroy you and to bring you to naught, and you shall be plucked from off the land where whither you go to possess it. So I want to just think about this statement. God rejoiced in giving the children of Israel all the blessings of, that were promised to Abraham. And those promises were that they would be a great nation, they'd be as the multitude of the heavens, as the stars in the sky and the sand of the than the dust of the earth, and that they, they would be bless, blessing to the whole world. And God says, I've enjoyed doing that for you. And we see that. He takes them out of uh, Egypt with mighty miracles, destroying all the various gods of Egypt, takes them across the Red Sea, wipes out the, the Egyptian army in the process, feeds his people, does all these miraculous things for them, feeds them for 40 years in the wilderness, even though they were rebellious people, gives them great victory in the time of Joshua, where they conquer the, the promised land, and they do not suffer losses during that period of time. Then we get to the period of Judges, and God says, okay, you keep misbehaving, I judge you, but he keeps repent, he keeps bringing them back and not, not getting rid of them out of their country. Uh, King Saul comes along, 
doesn't do all the right things. God brings in David and Solomon and they have their golden age of Israel. And then we see the long process where they keep pretty much going downward. The northern kingdom always has bad kings, always goes bad, goes bad and they get taken out real quick. And here God is saying, and this is something that might sound so strange, so the Lord will rejoice over you to destroy you and to bring you to naught, that you shall be plucked off from all the land whether you go to possess. And this is something we kind of have, might have trouble with when, when you first hear or read this, that God rejoices in bringing the discipline upon the Israelite people. And I just, I was thinking about this when I first read it because it struck me that I had never really noticed it before. God rejoicing. But you realize because of God's attributes, okay, we like to concentrate on the fact that God is love, he is mercy, he is kindness. But God has an equally strong set of attributes that says he is holy, righteous, and just. And that side of him will rejoice in bringing discipline upon the people. Not because he's trying to hurt them, but because it, his righteousness and his holiness demands judgment. And this is what Jesus did on the cross. He was our propitiation. The scriptures tell us that God poured out his wrath upon his son and that he rejoiced in doing it. He rejoiced in it because Jesus took all the sin of the world upon himself and God judged all the sin in Christ. And his righteousness and his holiness rejoiced in that punishment. And Moses here is warning the people, you go into the wrong direction. God will rejoice in punishing you as much as he did in blessing. God wants to bless his children. But if we aren't going to live the right lifestyle, his righteousness will come along and say, you are going to be judged and you're going to be punished. And so we think about this. Very important that we don't forget ever that God is righteous and holy and just. Now he poured out his anger in, on sin on Jesus Christ. And the good news for us is he sees us in Christ's righteousness when we are Christians. We accept Christ as our Savior. He will pour out all the love and kindness on us because he sees the perfect righteousness of Christ upon us. And this is so important. For by grace are we saved by faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. It is so easy for some of us to get to this place sometimes where we think, well, God, you're so special to have me because look how good I am. Look at all the good things I have started to do. I am no longer as bad as I used to be. Okay, and we find ourselves in that that thought processes pretty easily because that's the way our flesh wants to go. Look at me. Look at me. It starts out with kids. Remember kids as a kid, maybe as, as your kid or if you've had kids. Daddy, look at me. <laughs> you know, look at me. Look what I can do. Uh, you know, whether it's learning to run or walk or, you know, play with the hula hoop or whatever it is, kids like to have the center of attention. Look at me. Well, the thing is, we don't really ever outgrow that 
look at me. In the business place, oftentimes, it's, you know, they may not be saying look at me, but they're going to draw attention to the things they're doing for the company and, and what they're doing right in their business and what they're doing to make things good. And we always end up developing this. And in the church, people have the same general tendency. Look at me. I'm following God. And they may not do it all the time, but there's always this tendency. And God says, no, I don't want to look at you. I want to look at my son, Jesus. And he blesses us because of what Jesus has done. And very important for us to understand who we are in Christ. And the most important part of that is in Christ. We get saved by faith. We grow by faith. We do the works of God by faith. Not by my own works. If it's by my own works, it doesn't work anyway. God says that it's worthless. And so here he's saying, there's a, and again, we go back to this, we've been doing a blessing and curse. Here's the blessings of God and here's the curse. And here he's saying, if you're going to do the wrong thing, God is going to delight in bringing these curses upon you. And that's really something that we find very harsh and hard to believe, but yet it is true. His righteousness, his holiness, his justice will demand punishment. And on these people, it's going to be a long time from now. I mean, they haven't even gotten into the land yet. And then they're going to go through the long period, the couple hundred years of the judges. Then they're going to go through several hundred years of the kings. And then they're going to go into captivity because of their disobedience. The captivity of Assyria first for the northern kingdom. The captivity of Babylon for the, for the southern kingdom. And they're going to be punished for their disobedience. And they're going to be, just as he's going to say here, kicked out of the land. And, and we're going to look at some of this. And then again, they do it again. They come back into the land and they do this whole process all over again until they're finally kicked back out again under the Roman Empire. And then they're out of their land this time. Instead of for 70 years, they're out of their land for close to 2,000 years. And so 1,918 years or something like that before they're finally returned. We see this punishment. God's saying, you're not obeying me. And he says on here in verse 64, The Lord shall scatter you among all people from one end of the earth even into the other, and there you shall serve other gods which neither you nor your fathers have known, even wood and stone. And we saw this. In Babylon, they were scattered. Okay, Babylon scattered them. They, Babylon was one of the first nations that took people out of their home territory and scattered them all through, the, all through the empire and brought people from all over the empire and put them in the land that they had conquered. Great strategy. It keeps your people from ever rebelling against you. If uh, Germany had done that in France and, and moved the French way over to, to Poland and moved the Polish people into France, they probably would not have had near as many problems with the people because they weren't in their home territory. When you're fighting for your home, you're going to be very radical. And Babylon understood that. They moved people out of their homes and scattered them so they had to learn other languages in the first place before they could even try to unite. But they kept them also out of their, from their home. And he says he's going to scatter you all across this country and that they would worship other gods. This has been something that, is, that the Jews have done over the centuries 
When they went into Egypt, they started following the Egyptian gods. And as they got scattered, they held their identity somewhat, but they stopped worshiping God in, in his entirety. So stuff that happened to the Jews during World War II, is that like, fall in line with like, the stuff that you said they were Southern Kingdom inspired with Babylon and the Does that fall under the same? World War II was just Satan trying to get rid of them more than anything else because they did not have a home country yet and they were still scattered at that spot. But that's part of what's going on in here too. It's part of this curse. Oh, this curse has been going on for a long time. Satan has always been out to destroy Israel. And before Christ, the purpose of destroying Israel would be to, get, to make sure that the Messiah was never born because he was going to be of the seed of Abraham. So if he could manage to get rid of the Jews, then Messiah wouldn't have been born. And so that all kinds of different, the captivities, you have the uh, um, Esther's time when, when uh, Haman tried to destroy, destroy the Jews. After... Christ, Satan has been trying to destroy Israel because all of the end times focus on Israel. And if he can destroy Israel, again, he stops the prophecies. And if he can stop prophecies, then he has proven that God is not infallible. And so his whole goal has been to destroy Israel before Christ to try to prevent the Messiah from being born, after Christ to try to prevent the end time prophecies from being fulfilled. So, and here God's already told the people, when you disobey, I'm going to discipline you. I'm going to scatter you. And during the Babylonian Empire, the Israelites were scattered around. And when they finally got to return 70 years later, many of them did not want to return. They had made new businesses. They were pretty happy in their lands that they were at. And becoming what we would say nominal Jews, they, they, followed, they followed certain feast days and stuff that they had, but they really weren't worshiping God. They weren't offering sacrifices or anything else. They go back to Jerusalem, they build a temple, they start building, uh, and then they start sacrificing again. And even then, it took them a long time to build the temple when they were first sent back because they had been satisfied with the way of worshiping that they had done. Today, for the Jews, the very religious side of the Jews want to build the temple in because they want sacrifices because they know that there is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood and, and they need Yom Kippur being, being, being met. The non-religious Jews are just happy being their Jews, celebrating Passover and sleeping, sleeping in their little booths on, on the Feast of Tabernacle and all the little activities that they do, but they're not really worshiping God. So we see the same thing. The same thing that happened back in Babylon is, is happening today with the Jews, and they're back in their land, and we have a small group that says they want a temple, and the rest, ah, we don't care. And Satan has built something on the Temple Mount so that the Jews can't, it makes it difficult for the Jews to have their temple, supposedly. But the Dome of the Rock is not built on the site of the original temple. So they could build the temple, split the mountain, which they probably will because the Bible really indicates that that's what's going to happen is that the mountain will be split. And when, they, when, the prophet, when the prophet was told to measure the new temple, 
he says, don't include the court of the Gentiles because it has been given to the Gentiles, which indicates to us that they're going to build the temple and there'll be a wall basically splitting the, splitting the mount so that they can have their dome of the rock in the court of the Gentiles and they will have their temple. And that'll be the solution that the Antichrist will come up with most likely to make all these different religions happy to, and build the temple. So we see all of this. We see, and it's amazing when you start looking at scripture and see all the pieces <laughs> and how they can fit together so nice and easy and wonder, okay, God, how, how much longer? How long till God, until Jesus Christ comes for his church? It's not that far away. It really isn't because we're looking at it and saying everything there is in place. Israel's back in its land. We're, we're seeing the economy getting ready to collapse. We're getting to see chaos that's all set to go. We're seeing good being called evil and evil being called good. And it's like, okay, God, how much further? How much further does it have to get before we're at the point where the church will be taken? And more and more Jews are going back to Jerusalem, going back to Israel. And anti-Semitism is starting to kick back up again. And Jews are not wanted in most of the world and are being blamed for the, all the problems of the world again, just as they've always been blamed, all because of this prophecy that we're looking at, that we're beginning to look at. And it was already told to them that they were going to be blamed. It was already told to them they were going to be scattered. And uh, verse 65 says, For among these nations shall you find no ease, neither shall the sole of your foot have rest. But the Lord shall give you there a trembling heart and failing of eyes and sorrow of mind. And, the, and your life shall hang in doubt before you, and you shall fear day and night, and you shall have no assurance of your life. And again, we see this. He's really picturing anti-Semitism here. He goes, you're going to be going to these nations and you're not going to be at ease. Now, when they went to Babylon, many of them felt at ease in their little conclaves that they had built up. But after the diaspora, when they were scattered out of, after Roman captivity in 70 AD, they have not been really at ease completely. Uh, every time they turn around, they're being blamed for something, okay? And even today, they're being blamed for all kinds of things. During the Middle Ages, they were being, they were being blamed for the plague because they followed God's standards and washed their dishes and their hands, and if rats crawled across the food, they threw it away rather than eating it, and the rest of the world didn't understand that the, it was the fleas on the, on the rats that were bringing the plague, and people were dying, so what did they do? The, the Jews weren't being killed, so they said, okay, these are witches and sorcerers, and they burned them. Mm. They would take them out and burn them so frequently because they were at fault. They, were, they have been very shrewd in their banking and, and, and lending businesses because of the rules that they followed of God. And they've been blamed for taking advantage of the bad situations that people followed. You know, They wouldn't borrow, but others borrowed from them, just as God said they would. And so they've been blamed. Hitler wanted to blame them for just about everything, you know, and started killing them. And this has been the pattern year after year after year, millennia for millennia now, that they have been blamed, they have been accused. And it says, there will be no ease, your soul or your foot shall have, shall neither, shall have not rest. 
and the Lord will give you a trembling heart, a failing eye, and sorrow of mind. Many times the Jews have been worried about their lives over and over again. So the Jews have had all these problems over the years of people going after them for whatever reason. And many times it made no sense, but it was Satan energizing the angers and the, and the, and the petty bickerings and aiming it at the Jews, trying to destroy them. Over and over again, he's tried to destroy them. During the whole time that the Roman Catholic Church was in control, they would oftentimes be trying to kill Jews in the process of their running. But they also tried to kill just about everybody else who wasn't Catholic. So it really wasn't necessarily aimed just at Jews. But that period of time, they were in trouble. And many of them quit outwardly practicing Judaism because of the hassles that they would go through. And same thing in, in Germany during the period of Hitler. They would oftentimes, if they could get away with it, quit being outwardly practicing Jews. And we're seeing now that Jerusalem has been given back to, or the Israel has been given back to the people in Jerusalem. More and more Jews are going back to Israel and to settle in what is home for the Jews. And it's becoming a larger and larger population that's coming back. It's, it's happening. Europe, with the anti-Semitism that's kicking back into place, they're starting to leave Europe to go back to uh, Israel. Uh, America, anti-Semitism isn't quite as bad yet, but it is starting to pick up again. The Jews are starting to get a lot of blame, even in American thought patterns. But eventually, they're all pretty much going to be back to Israel because that's where God wants them. God wants them in, in their home, and they're going to be... But we're going to see, there's, the prophecy was they're not going to be at peace. Many Jews, if you talk to many Jews, many of them want to go to Israel. If nothing else, they want to go visit Israel. Many Christians want to go visit Israel. I would love to go visit Israel just because. I'd love to see where Jesus walked. I'd love to see where all of these big events that we've been talking about have happened. The crossing of the, the Jordan, the crossing of the Red Sea, the whole Holy Land experience would be a wonderful thing to go see. There's a specialness to it. There really is a specialness to it. I've, I've never talked to anybody who's gone to Israel who hasn't said that, it, that you didn't come back totally different in your thinking about God and the Bible and, and everything. So there's something. God has made Jerusalem and Israel his, put his stamp on it. Okay, Just as Satan has obviously put his stamp on Babylon and that whole area. So we see all of this going on, but the the prophecy given by Moses. You're going into this land. God is going to bless you. He's already blessed you. You went into Egypt with 70 people and you've come out with about three and a half million, we believe, somewhere around there. We know there's 660,000 fighting men. And as we've explained, most of them were probably married. So it's about, about 1.2 million. And then most of them probably have a kid or two. So we're sitting somewhere three you know, somewhere around three to five million people coming out of Egypt. So easy to say, three and a half million, pretty safe, pretty safe number. God has greatly blessed Israel in the couple hundred years that they were in Egypt. And he's going to bless them greatly in their land. And then through their disobedience, he's going to judge them. 
But verse 65 says that he's going to give them a trembling heart. The Jews for years have been trembling because they have not had a land of their own. And they were always waiting for the next person to come against them, the next group to come against them. And in America's had many times of anti-Semitism that's come along where the, the Jews start getting blamed for a lot of things. They've been blamed for the, some of the stock market crashes. They've been blamed for uh, different activities out there even in our own country, because they make a target, and Satan is the one that initiates a lot of that. And it's not to give people an excuse for it, but Satan is out to destroy the Jews, and he will ignite fears and, and attacks on them. And this has been something they have faced forever. Because Satan does not... He hates all people, but he really hates the Jewish people because they are God's people, and they are the center of all activity for God. For whatever reason, they're the center of all activity. They were the center for the Messiah being born and they will be the center when, on the end days when the church is taken out and everything gets focused back again on Israel. And the temple's been built and they'll think that the Christ has come when, when, the, when the Antichrist comes and they get to build their temple. They're going to think Messiah has come. We're, we're going to be the center. And then at the halfway point, he stands up and says, worship me, I am God. And all of a sudden, God gives him a divine knowledge that you've been deceived. This is not the Messiah. You've, you missed the Messiah. And everything changes for them in a really big way. And this thing really kicks in that they'll be completely in fear. Because everything they do will be nothing but attacks for three and a half years. They will be constantly under attack by Satan and his, and his forces and it's only God that's going to keep them alive and then we'll see miracles just as we've always seen Israel has always had great miracles in its existence from battles in, in the Pentateuch where God extends a day so that they can finish a battle uh, we see them dropping hailstones on their enemies uh, we see Jonathan going up to a garrison and saying, you know, God, if God wants us to go up, he'll say, come on up here and we'll go up there and we'll kill off the entire garrison. And just Jonathan by and his shield bearer destroyed the entire garrison and, and they're able to win the battle. Uh, Israel's able to win the battle and, and kill many people. The Six-day war fell under that. The six-day war fell under that. There's huge miracles involved when, if you study the Six-day war, They've got bombs that would hit buildings and not blow up. They would have planes that fell out of, missiles that just fell out of the sky. They had whole divisions that would surrender to two or three puzzled Israeli army men because they saw an army behind them and surrendered. These guys would like, why are these guys surrendering to us? You know, because they just see the, you know, the two or three of them and an entire division is surrendering to them. Things like this happened over and over and over again in Israel's history. And they get better use out of weapons than anybody else could ever get out of them. And, you know, God has just blessed it because they're his people. And over and over this has happened. And this is going to happen in the end days when Satan is trying to destroy them. It'll be the angelic forces defending Israel and keeping them from being defeated because God's going to say they are not going to be defeated. They're my people. And they're going to learn really what it means to say God is your defense. In a very literal way, God will be their defense. And 
all of this when they finally come to where they're supposed to be and realize we need to follow God. And that'll happen toward the end of the, end of the tribulation period as a nation, <laughs> that they'll, they'll come to that conclusion. And they really have not had many times when they felt this way. Even in Moses' day, the people really did not follow God that closely. Every time they turned around, they were going against God, even in Moses' day. Joshua's day, from what we see most of the time, they were following God. And what, why? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe it's because everything was so critical that they had to follow God because they were in battle for Joseph uh, in uh, jo Joshua's life. And a lot of times, it's the same thing for us. The more trouble we have in our life, the closer we draw to God because we know that we need him. The time when we're really in trouble is when everything seems to be going right in our life and we start getting this little bit of a thought, well, okay, God, I don't need you quite as much and we don't, we don't pray as much, we don't seek his face as much, we don't ask him for help as much. But, and I don't know if you've ever noticed that in your life, but when things are going really smooth, really easy, we tend to kind of back away from God. And when life is difficult, we're on our face, God, I need your help. You know, I need your help, God. You know, and if, if we were God, we'd probably say, well, you didn't need my help uh, last week when everything was going good. What do you need my help now for? But God uses those tough times to bring us to him, and he does that for Israel. And then all through Judges, they kept falling away, and then when things would get tough, they'd call out to God. David and Solomon were good leaders, and people were generally following God during that period of time. The northern tribe, when they broke apart after Solomon's day, never had a good leader and never had anything good said about them for that entire time the northern kingdom is in existence. They were known for worshiping idols. Israel had several good kings that tried at various times to get the people to change. But there's always a little key phrase in there that you'll see. But he, this king was, did, he cleaned this up, but he did not get rid of the high places. So he didn't get rid of all of the idols and everything. And those idols would always come back to haunt them. And we see this over and over and over again in their life. And we see it in our life too. If we don't get rid of the little places that we have set up as idols in our life. And many of us will do this. We'll go, God, I want to get rid of this, in my, this and this in my life. And we'll start cleaning up our life. And then there'll be some little sin in our life. Where we go, God, I am just not ready to release this one. I want to keep this one. And we wrap a wall around it. And, okay, God, you can't have this. You can have everything else in my life, but not this. And eventually, hopefully, we give that up. But there'll be some other area in our life that we tend not to give up. And those will be our besetting sins. The thing that will keep making us trip up. For some, it might be their alcohol. They just can never get rid of alcohol, no matter how much they try. For some, it may be their their lustful lifestyle and everything. They just can't get rid of that lust in their heart. And they'll have this besetting sins that keep following after them. And, but Jesus, here Moses is telling them, you're going to be in fear. And your life shall hang in doubt before you. You shall fear day and night and, and ha shall have no assurance in your life. And this is many times where the Jews have been. Totally in fear of what's going on. And I love this. And in the morning you would say, would to God that it were evening, and at evening you will say, would to God that it was morning, for the fear in your heart, wherewithal you shall fear, for 
the sight of your eyes which you shall see. Have you ever been in the place where you kind of just wished that it was whatever it wasn't? God, uh, things are just so bad. Uh, I wish it was night so I could be sleeping. And you didn't sleep real well and you're going, I wish it was, you know, nighttime. I wish it was daytime so I could be doing something. You get back to the daytime and I wish it was night because I'm so tired and I just don't want to deal with all of this. This is what he's talking about. Always wishing for something else. And we might not be saying day and night in our day and age, but how many times have we lived with that, I, I want something else. I don't want what I'm going through. I want something else. This is so important for us to be at peace with where we are at. Living in the moment. Paul said, I have learned to be content with much or with little, with plenty and with little. You know, whether in uh, bonds or out of bonds, he goes, whatever God's put in my way, I've learned to be content. This is what God's saying. I'm your defense. Just let me be your defender. You hide in me. But because they were so worried about what was going on, they were never happy. And I have met so many people, even as Christians, that are never happy. They never have enough. God's not doing enough in their life. They're just never pleased with anything that's going on in their life. Mostly because they're not looking for what God is doing in their life. And this is very important for us. God is always working in our life. Even when things don't look like they're good in our life, God is still good and has a plan for us to be dealing with. And we need to be able to work with that. God, what is it you want me to do in this situation? How are you trying to develop me? And get used to it because our life is going to have trials for the rest of our existence. And those trials are there to help teach us something. Sometimes they're there to punish us, but mostly they're there to teach us and prepare us for when things really get tough. For the next big trial. For the next, big, for the next trial that comes along. But even at that, each trial that we successfully pass through has an appearance to other people that says, this person has got something I want. Because how many times do we look at somebody and say, wow, that person's got it all together. Now, if you really knew what they were going through, you probably wouldn't think they had it all together, including other Christians. Because every time you do something big for God, Satan is going to come against you with something else to try to trip you up and make you lose, lose your face. So the more you're doing for God, the more under Satan's attack you're going to be in the first place. You know, when, when all you're doing is nothing or very little, Satan doesn't care. If somebody gets saved, he's, he's unhappy that he lost a, lost a soul to take from God. But if all they're going to do is sit in the pew and do nothing, they're not, a, they're not that big a deal to him. But if they start learning to witness and share the gospel with people. They start leading people to Christ. They start discipling people. All of a sudden, they become a threat. Then they take the next step. And who knows what can happen once they get the next step. Because God is going to use us in ways that we can never, ever understand. And for each one of us, we're probably amazed at how God uses us already. You know, when you first got saved, did you ever think that you would be doing half of what you're doing today? Probably not. Yeah. When I first got saved, I never thought I'd be teaching Bible classes and, and being on the Internet and reaching, reaching a number of people and ministering into lives. 
and yet God is using me in ways that I never dreamed that I would be used. And who knows what he's got into the future. But I, I love thinking about you know, somebody like Billy Graham. In uh, a biography of Zamperini, he got saved at the Billy Graham crusade. And outside the tent that he got saved in, it was free seating for 3,000 people. <laughs> okay. It's been a long time since Billy Graham's preached to 3,000 people and, and, and figuring that that was a big number because this was early on in his ministry. And it just it struck me so funny because he was preaching to 3,000 people. He never dreamed that he would be preaching in Colosseums a few years later, filling 20,000, 30,000 people in a Colosseum, 60,000 people, a million people watching him on television and everything. Because that is not usually what you think of. You know, when Billy Graham got saved, even when he became an evangelist, I'm sure he wasn't thinking, I'm going to go preach to a million people. We need to be aware that whatever God calls us to do is just the beginning. And as we are faithful in little, he will start increasing and give us more and more to the point of we have no idea where it's going to end up. And I love listening to those testimonies of people. They don't know where it's going to end up. Uh, Zamperini ended up building a big boys uh, retreat or retreat for troubled youth and, and ministered to thousands of them. He preached all around the country the gospel message and never, never understood why he was being singled out for all of this because he never thought that he had done anything really special other than survive. And you know, how many times do we have that same thing when somebody will come up to say, I really was appreciative when you did such and such, and all we're doing is like, well, I was just living. It wasn't even something I did. I wasn't even thinking about God when I did it. This is where the great things happen. We just live out our Christian life, and people get blessed. And it's pretty amazing sometimes. People will look at you. If you've been honest and living for God, you will get people in heaven that said, I was watching. I was watching you because we are always being watched especially if you're telling people you're a Christian you're being watched and hopefully you're walking a life worthy of Christ when you're being watched because it's amazing it's, a, it's amazing your neighbors know that you go to church if you're going to church all the time they see you go be faithful to church and when you're faithful to church and it goes okay there's something different about this person I don't know why they're going to church those church people are crazy but they're going to church uh, and, and they seem to have their life together. You know, we, they, they seem to have their life together. They're not being tossed and thrown about by everything that happens. They're not, they're not all drinking themselves into oblivion or, or uh, dumping enough drugs into them to go into oblivion. They, they notice these things from around you because that's how they get out of it. You know, so, and they notice that we do not do the same things when we are actually walking according to God as a good example. Most people may not know that they need God, but I don't know that there's very many people that don't have God that don't think something's wrong with their, with their life. God, there's an emptiness in, in the lost world's heart. It really is. You talk to enough of them, they may not know that it's God they need, but they have a hollow, empty space in their life, and that's what they're trying to fill it with. They think that their fame might do it, or work might do it, or family might do it, or extreme sports might do it, anything that makes them feel 
alive and full, at least for a moment. See, I always believe that fame, fame. Many people think fame will do it, but enough people get into the fame, fame direction and they find out that fame just doesn't fulfill. They feel that if there's enough people admiring them, that they'll be happy. They'll end up being the saddest because they get to a place where do, are, are people liking me just because of my fame or do they like me and it never fulfills or they're liking me especially for uh, movie actors or, or, or TV actors. Well, they like me for the roles that I'm playing but they don't know me and they never feel fulfilled. Most, most of our actors have that problem. They don't like me. They like who, I, who I'm pretending to be and I always have to pretend because that's what they expect me to be and if they really saw who I am, they wouldn't like me. And so it intensifies that hollowness. The athletes, you know, if I do famous enough, I get to be four-time MVP, fulfill me, and they get there and they're still not fulfilled. The lost world has this emptiness. Pascal said it's a God-shaped vacuum in their life that nothing will fill but God, okay? And it's a very apt, apt thing. There's a God-shaped hole in our life that is so big that only God can fill it and we can dump as much success as we want. We can dump as much drugs in it as we want or alcohol or, or fame or success in the workplace. It will never fill the hole that only God can fill. And the good news is, and it's so much fun when you witness to somebody and watch them say the sinner's prayer and they get saved. And all of a sudden, all that emptiness is filled with God. And you just see the, the lightness on them. God lifts the the sin off their the burden off their backs and all of a sudden they're light they're, there's joy in their heart and it doesn't always happen instantly sometimes it takes a while for it to happen but it's very fun when you watch these people who get truly saved and I've seen so many times and I'll tell you right off so many times because all that stress and everything comes off of them they start standing straighter there's a nicer look on it. Many times it looks like they've lost 20 or 30 years off their, off their appearance because all that stress is gone. And it's, it's fun. It's wonderful to see, and it's wonderful because they become a new creation. God has filled that emptiness. And they may, they're going to have to grow in their walk with him, but you see the change, and it's amazing to watch and see those changes in people. I've prayed with so many people over the years and watched that happen, and it's just an amazing thing. I've prayed with some people, and I'm not sure that they got saved, you know, because it just, there was nothing. You know, they, they, they mouthed words, probably. Now, I can't judge it, but it, it seemed like they mouthed words. There was no change in their life, no filling. And those are the people you're going to go, well, I tried God. You don't try God. You, you become a child of God. You don't try God. And that was one of the witnessing things that was really big in the 70s. Just try God. No, quit trying. You either are his or you're not. There's no try. It's yes or no. Yeah, it's a yes or no. It's, it's do or don't do, but don't, don't try to just test it. And the last verse, verse 68, And the Lord shall bring you into Egypt again with ships by the way where I speak unto you, and you shall see it no more. You will be sold unto your enemies for bondmen and bondwomen, and no man shall buy you. How would you want to be a person up for a slave auction? You know, it's bad enough to be a slave, you know, be up for slave auction, then nobody buys you.
It's bad enough to be a slave, but then to have nobody want you would be terrible. You know, not that you want to be a slave, but you understand what I'm saying. You know, you're on the block, you're being thrown in with every group, and they go, no, we don't want that one. <laughs> but we look at this, and it says, the Lord shall bring you into Egypt again. One of the things about Egypt, when you read Egypt, yes, there's a real country called Egypt, and a lot of times it's talking about Egypt. But Egypt also refers to going back into the world system. Not necessarily captivity, but... Not necessarily captivity, but going back into the world away from God. For Christians, it would be turning away from Christ and returning back to your old way of life, going back to the world, going backsliding, going into Egypt. Uh, Egypt oftentimes has that picture of being backsliding. Abraham was supposed to be wandering the promised land, and what did he do? He went to Egypt, got into trouble because he said Sarah was his sister, and Pharaoh was, got into trouble with God because he took Sarah into his harem, and God said, you know, told him he's a dead man, and, and he, he kicks Abraham out of, out of it. And, and Abraham didn't learn his lesson with uh, Pharaoh. He went and did it again with Abimelech, and same thing, you're a dead man. And Abimelech says, get out of here. You've lied to me. You've gotten me in trouble with God. Get out of here. He was trying to save his own life. But again, it was turning away from God to a world's way of, the world's way of thinking. Returning, and the idea, we get that statement in, around Christianity, returning to Egypt. Going back to Egypt or going back to the world. And Egypt oftentimes represents this idea of leaving God and going back into the world's way of thinking. And this is becoming very important for us in the Christian world. We need to have a biblical world view and accept the Bible no matter what the world tells us. And there's been many times where there's been real problems over the, over the centuries even. Galileo got in trouble with the Catholic Church for saying that the world was round, even though the Bible said the world was round. Okay? But the Catholics didn't read the Bible, so they criticized Galileo for saying that the world is round. And he did it from scientific proofs. We've seen this over and over. Darwin proposed or popularized the idea of evolution. The church for many years tried to figure out how to make evolution part of the Bible instead of just saying, this is what the Bible says, the Bible's true. They tried to fit the two together, and they're diametrically opposed. And we're now finding out that evolution has all kinds of holes in it. It doesn't fit the Bible, and the Bible was true, and it fits science. It fits true science. So we just look at it and say, I need to believe the Bible. If the Bible says do something, I should do it. If the Bible says don't do something, I shouldn't do it. <laughs> Plain and simple. If, it, if it's positive and says do it, do it. If it's negative about it and says don't do it, don't do it. And then let God worry about why, it, why it's true, even if you don't understand why it's true. God wants us to be obedient to him. And the more obedient we are to him, the more blessing we're going to have because of our obedience. We don't want to go back into Egypt. We don't want to go back into the world's way of thinking. Besides the fact, if, you're a, if you truly are a Christian, you can't go back to the world and be happy. If you've ever tried it, you know that that's, not, that that's absolutely true. You cannot go back to doing what you used to do in the sin, sin and be happy. You're always feeling convicted about it. You always know that I'm not supposed to be doing this, and this is how God changes us. You know, we may still do it at first, but we're thinking, we always know, no, you're not supposed to do it, you're not supposed to do it, you're not supposed to do it, you're not supposed to do it. 
And even if we start doing it, and then eventually we finally, if we're smart, <laughs> we quit doing it. <laughs> because it's just not the same thing. If you were into drugs and alcohol, you cannot go back into drugs and alcohol without that conviction that it's wrong. If you were a liar, you cannot go back into lying without the conviction that it's wrong. If you were an adulterer or a fornicator, you cannot go back into those things and, and do them without knowing that they're wrong. And whatever sin it might be, you know it's wrong because the Holy Spirit convicts. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love and care for us. Lord, we ask that you help us to walk in your ways, that you will not have to judge us for falling back, and that you will not go back into the world. Lord, that you, we will not put ourselves under that kind of treatment. And we just thank you in your son's name. Amen.